Welcome to Life Stories, a podcast where I interview memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Elaine Louis. She is the author of Listen to the Squawking Chicken, When a Mother Knows Best, What's a Daughter to Do? It's billed as a memoir, sort of, in parentheses there. It's just out by Amy Einhorn Books, and we're thrilled to be talking with you, Elaine. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. So let's say to start with that, so the squawking chicken is your mom. But this isn't a tag that you've put on her. This is actually a nickname that she had long before you were born. That's right. The Squawking Chicken is my mother. And this is a nickname that she was given as a young girl growing up in Hong Kong. She was very outspoken. She was assertive. In an environment and an era where girls aren't normally behaved that way. And on top of that, she has this voice this unique signature. I've compared it to the sound of a thousand roosters. It's very jarring. It is a blast to the brain. And so people in the village, in the town where she grew up, started recognizing her by both her voice and her attitude. And when she was squawking at you, legend says in the town, you wanted to get out of the way. The squawking for her came... It was a very particular transformative moment in her life that she told you about at one point. Yes. She was raised by gamblers. Her parents were gamblers. And the life of a gambler is, you know, understatement of the year, not stable. So when things were flush, which didn't happen often, it was great. But more often than not, things were down. They lost a lot of money. And my mother was obliged to take care of her siblings. She had five siblings. She was one of six, the oldest of six. And her parents were unkind and inconsiderate. So one night when she was out working to support the family because her parents had gambled the money away, she was walking home and she was raped. Then she came home and told them what happened to her and they didn't care and they didn't help her. And she was so despondent and felt so rejected that she considered taking her own life, which she tried to do by swallowing some pills. But she overheard a conversation that her parents were having, or she remembers hearing a conversation that her parents were having. And it was not remorseful. They wouldn't fight for her. And so she, at that moment, became defiant and squawked and decided to squawk slash fight for herself. And in the book, I talk about that as her phoenix rising moment. And a chicken, as I say in the book, is a, is a type of phoenix. Our phoenix is a kind of chicken that molts every few years. And it was like she was molting from who she was before. And as you said, transforming into somebody totally new and stronger and more independent. In her own way, those are lessons that she has tried to pass down to you from the beginning, it sounds like. Lessons or corrections or readjustments, fate changers, maybe all of the above. What my mother did not want was for me to repeat her, her life. Her, she didn't want the same destiny for me. And she was, well, she was born to two people who weren't very responsible. So she endeavored to be responsible so that I wouldn't have to eat so much heartbreak and betrayal and failure and that I, 
you know, I could start from the beginning of the start line of a race as opposed to 10 feet back or, you know, halfway around the track. This book is about her lessons, but this book was also, is also about her effort to make sure I didn't repeat that destiny that she experienced. And it's a very intimidating form of correction in a lot of ways. It's, I mean, she does not pull any punches, does not hold anything back. You know, she's pretty upfront and, and consequently you're pretty upfront about like She's orchestrating your life. Yes, she is the architect of my life. She meticulously planned it and some would say manipulated me into living it. But she had a goal and the goal was for me to live the best life that I could live. And some would argue the the life she never got to live. In methods that are probably a little controversial, some would call harsh, but always full of love, intended with love. One of which, for example, is that she has no compunctions about, from, from childhood on or even to this day, about shaming you in public. Yes. And I realize that for the North American modern mother, the public shaming is a parental no-no. But my mother used public shaming quite effectively. There's a chapter in the book about how she used public shaming to correct me. It's called, I should have given birth to a piece of barbecue pork. And she would say that to me when I screwed up, when I made mistakes, when I disappointed her. She would say, I should have given birth to a piece of barbecue pork because it tastes good and only lasts for five minutes, but it's not lifetime of grief. Why did I give birth to something that's just going to give me grief and trouble all the time? The first time I heard that, I was young. I was nine, ten, maybe. And, you know, I know that there may be people listening today and maybe while you were reading it saying, wow, that's a lot to put on a young girl. But for me, the way I took it was, yeah, I screwed up. And I know better, and I should be better, and I know that she only wants better for me. So that consistent public shaming and pre-shaming, shaming me before I even made the mistake, really served to become like a runway for me, where to go and where not to go. Right. I mean, like her whole approach to drug education was an extended form of pre-shaming. Hey, if you do drugs, it's going to happen to you. This, If you do drugs, I'm going to treat you like this. No one's going to want to talk to you. It's going to be awful. You know, she really gave me a taste of what it would be like if I were to become a drug addict. I compared it in the book to a form of inoculation. You know, when you get a flu shot, they're giving you a little bit of the flu so that you can build up an immunity to the, to the flu. And I feel like she was giving me a little bit of what life would be like if I were to turn into an addict so that I would build up an immunity towards addiction because she had seen the effects of addictions. You know, a couple of her siblings were serious addicts and she had taken them to rehab. On my father's side, there are a couple of addicts and their lives were totally ruined. And it was her mortal fear that drugs would bring me down. In her community, she was seeing it all over the place. And it's something that you give its own chapter, but I think her repeated emphasis on what she calls low-classy behavior right. is, uh, is, is related. I mean, that's also 
a very extended form of, of pre-shaming you into better behavior. Better manners. Better manners. Yeah. And low classy is a, an ex- expression that I, it's one of my favorite expressions that she has come up with. It's just so funny from a language point of view. And also it just, it, and it sounds so great, but also it's so descriptive. She has very specific things that she considers to be low classy, leg shaking, you know, leg jiggling would be one of them. Leaning. It's a very youthful. It's a, leaning against a wall while you're waning, smoking and walking, all those things. But what's interesting to me, at least, about low classy and my mother's attitude towards low classiness is that it can be quite hypocritical because many of the behaviors that she exhibits could be considered quite low classy. Chewing with her mouth open, bodily functions readily shared. In North America, you don't do that in polite company. But she has an excuse for all of her low-classy behaviors. And then there are the deeper, more profound low-classy behaviors. I mean, those the leg jiggling and the leaning, those are very superficial. But the profound ones are about action, cheating, fidelity. It's been very insightful for me to write that chapter to identify what behaviors she considers low classy, but to call her out on the hypocrisy of adhering to a manifesto against low classiness over kindness and understanding. That helpfulness that you describe, I think, is something that is at the heart of the story in that, you know, there are versions of this story that other people could tell where it is simply, oh my God, my mother is a control freak. It's driving me crazy. And it would be like a strictly critical and you don't do that. There's a lot of this, which is like, my mother is a control freak and she's controlling my life and it's worked out. Yeah. But at the same time, it's not a blind acceptance of that. I don't want to say that my mother's method was flawed, but I will say that she is flawed. She's a complicated, oftentimes hypocritical person. But she taught me to be honest and raw. I couldn't write a book about her teachings without being as honest and raw as possible. And to do that, I had to point out where she'd failed. Not where people had failed her, but where she herself had failed. And in those areas, she has failed at trust and friendship, which is a cornerstone of trust. And she's failed at understanding and empathy. She has her reasons. She was hardened to life by her parents and all the people who've disappointed her along the way. But at a certain point, those excuses only carry so far and we make our own good choices. And that's what she taught me to make good choices. And in certain areas, she didn't make good choices. And in order for me to accurately tell the story, I really had to not be blind and point out the areas where I learned from her by not being like her. And to say that, you know, for example, your mother probably did push away the majority of the friends that you had growing up for whatever her reasons were. And it's a complex thing to be able to say that it's like, okay, some of those cases she was, she may have been right. Some of those cases you're, you're still not happy about that. No. I mean, when you reflect back, I'm 40 years old and I reflect back on those friendships and relationships of mine that she affected in positive and negative ways, they do end up balancing out 
for as many friendships that she ruined, she certainly saved me from some people who probably would not have done me any good in the long run. But I do sometimes feel wistful about how those friendships, the good ones, would have grown had I been encouraged in a different way to maintain them. And there was is, was a girl who I called Georgia in the book, and she was my best friend in high school. And we, you know, we used to really see ourselves as like sisters, two sides of the same coin. And high school relationships and friendships are dramatic anyway. My mother was so unforgiving about the times that Georgia wasn't nice to me, not thinking that probably I wasn't nice to Georgia sometimes either, that she became that dark angel on my shoulder that talked me out of fixing what I had with Georgia. And it's sad to me because I saw Georgia a couple years ago. You know, we ran into each other. You connect. Now it's easier to with social media and technology and whatever. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, it's been 20 years over. I wonder what we could have done together had we just believed in each other more. And some of that I attribute to my mother, for sure. Now, what prompted you to lay the story out for the world? I have to admit, there is some selfishness to it. My mother, who is the most important person in my life, doesn't have good health. And she became very sick a few years ago, two, three years ago. They couldn't find a reason. And she was hospitalized for a total of nine months. And that includes diagnosis, treatment, and rehabilitation. She didn't go home at all. It's a long hospital stay. And during that time, I was her only light and motivation. She looked forward to my visits. I came every day. Um, sometimes I stayed all day. If I had to go to work, then I would come morning and night. And we shared a lot. And we talked a lot. She started downloading more things to me. And it was a very painful experience, but it was the honor of my life to change her, feed her, love her, nurse her. And I thought to myself, what if I forget who she is? What will I have? I've chosen not to have children. So I feel like in that moment, I decided I needed to somehow capture it and preserve it. So when the opportunity came for me to write a book, there was nothing else I could have written because it happened so soon after she had started to recover that I said, this is your chance to lay it down so that when she stops squawking one day, if, when, I have something for me. So really, partly selfishly, the book is for me. And I will say the book is also a tribute to her. As I say in the book, it is the honor of my life to be her daughter and to have loved her and for her to have loved me. And it's my turn to show her that and to give honor to her. It's a very Chinese cultural foundation. It's called filial piety. Mm -hmm. And it was a cornerstone of Confucian philosophy, which is that a truly enlightened and actualized society is a society in which the parents are happy. 
So social happiness is based on parental happiness, not the child's happiness, which is a departure from, I would say, North American perspective, because in North America, we say, as a parent, my job is to do everything for this kid. My job is to funnel everything, love, care, money, one-way, parent to child. In Chinese culture, according to Confucius and filial piety, that is funneled from child to parent. It's my duty to make sure my parents are happy. It's my duty that they are respected. And so to me, this is the best way that I could deliver on that expectation of filial piety from my culture is to write a book that raises her up. Everything your mother was doing to you and for you as a child was basically with the aim of providing a sense of security for her. Yes. When you were old enough to provide it. You're right. And you're, you captured that. I worked for weeks on trying to explain that, her selfish approach to filial piety. I worked for weeks on that page, and you just got it in two seconds. You're right. What she did, partly why she did what she did and why she raised me the way she raised me, was for payback. She wanted to be paid back in kind, in goodness, in in the way that I do pay her back. That was her tweaking of the concept of filial piety. Right, and it's interesting that you write about how she hits you up for money a lot of the time, <laughs> and it's not even that she needs it, because it sounds like she doesn't particularly need it, but that it's it's the form, it's the process. It's right, that's right. My parents do not need the money. They've worked hard. They have saved. They're immigrants, right? So they worked eight jobs at a time. I mean, they really struggled, and they scrapped away, so they they're okay. They're good. But the reason why you say my mother hits me up for money, and it is hitting me up for money, it is a straight-up demand for money, is because she believes that she's earned it. I raised you. Everything you have is because I gave you a good life. So it's payback time. This is my expectation of you. This is a cultural expectation. It's a personal expectation. But it's also a, you know, show me what, how you, how grateful you are to me. It is your duty to be appreciative of what I, your mother, have done for you. At the time that you would have been thinking about setting this out and, and all this was going on, I mean, obviously in recent years, there have been some notions about Chinese motherhood that have gained a lot of traction in, in, a, in the popular imagination. And there's some points of resonance here, but there's also a lot of differences, I think. I think there are a lot of differences. I mean, of course, there are similarities. One similarity would be the discipline, the structure that my mother imposed on me, the firm hand. But I would say where it greatly differs from other stories that you've heard, and I assume we're talking about Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother mm -hmm. and Amy Chua, is that Amy Chua is an academic. So much of her technique was really on pragmatic methods. She was very practical. She is very practical. She's, you know, she's a professor. She teaches in black and white. My mother teaches with discipline 100%, but in the book, there's a lot of spirituality. There's a lot of magic in this book. And I'm not saying it's a magical book. I'm saying that my mother used magic, superstition, old folk stories, legends, feng shui, you know, the art of wind and water. 
she used all of those to shape me and guide me. And that's not very academic at all. And in fact, many would argue that it's the opposite of pragmatic, that superstition and feng shui and fortune telling and magic is the opposite of tangible and grounded. But those things also form a core in me in a how I am as a person, my identity. You know, we're drinking hot water right now. I'm drinking hot water right now. And the reason I drink hot water is it's a superstitious mandate from my mother. And as I talk about in the book, I have certain rituals that she's given me based on my Chinese astrological sign. Hot water in the morning, eye drops in the morning, a papaya or an orange. For me, for my husband, it's a banana. When to do things on lucky days, what to not to do on unlucky days. I would say that that is probably the greatest departure from the stories that we've heard, contemporary stories about the Chinese way of parenting. And I feel like that's specifically unique to my mother. I think it must require a a real kind of can't must require a real kind of bravery to be able to come out and say, you know, I'm 40 years old and my daily routine is set by my mother's superstitious beliefs. <laughs> uh, bravery or fear, because to me, it's less frightening to admit that to you and to other people than it is to face the prospect of the what if I don't do all those things. I'm more afraid of the what if. I don't have my hot water, I don't have my eye drops, then of people laughing at me because I am a 40-year-old woman who is crippled by Chinese superstition, passed on by her mother. Isn't that, <laughs> isn't that, uh, isn't that the craziest thing of all? And yet, I mean, obviously, that you, I mean, you pegged one possible interpretation from an outsider of your life story, but at the other, I mean... You're you're very self-assured. You're you're very successful. You you're very comfortable in your identity and who you've become. It sounds like we all have work to do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. With that, caveat, with that caveat aside, you you do seem fairly comfortable with how it's worked out. I'm comfortable talking about my mother. I'm comfortable talking about our relationship and honoring it. I've said the word honor a lot of times, and I'm sorry, but I feel like that's the only way I can describe it. I'm comfortable honoring it. I'm comfortable presenting it and sharing it. But actually, now that you think about it, it's like, I mean, when you just said, well, I'm sorry, I'm talking about it. It's weird that it's like (laughs) this cultural climate where it feels weird to talk about that. Yeah, I guess so. I talk a lot in my other job, which is celebrity gossip. I talk a lot about bragging and boasting and the culture that we are now of showing off, whether that's on Instagram in a bikini photo or on social media, on Twitter or on Facebook, look at my beautiful baby and my wonderful life. And so I don't know if that is an extreme reaction to my criticism of the show-off culture to apologize for wanting to honor my mother, or if it's just being Canadian. We just (laughs) apologize all the time and say thank you all the time. I am comfortable in that I have worked hard on self-acceptance and having peace with this relationship with my mother, but also I, she made me be comfortable with who I am. It was not easy growing up in a very white world as a Chinese girl. That's my first recollection of discomfort and of struggling to be in 
this skin. It's a very peculiar experience growing up a cultural ethnic minority in North America. In in America, in the U.S., I'm sure it's an entirely different narrative. But in Canada, for me, it was strange. And there were many times where I wanted to just assimilate. And just to be the girl who didn't look different, who didn't eat differently. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's these, the simple things is what you bring to school for lunch. Other kids have sandwiches, bread. I mean, bread is not a staple in the Chinese diet. Rice is. Mm-hmm. So I was bringing Chinese soup and rice to school for lunch and things that smelled weird and weren't peanut butter. You know, those are the things that I feel like I struggled with when I was younger and that she forced me to confront and accept. This is you. You know, don't, like, why are you dyeing your hair? Why are you pretending you're half, she would say to me, and this is an offensive term, but it's her term when she was in in, in Cantonese. Why are you pretending you're half-breed of half-something and half? You are fully Chinese. You got to learn to love that or at least live with it, accept it. And so I think that I spent so much time being uncomfortable when I was younger that the only way to go was to get more comfortable. And I think that she had a lot to do with making me confront me to get me to a comfort a comfort place or more comfortable place. So the flip side of becoming comfortable with telling the world about your life and your life with your mother is, you know, when you've written a book about your mother and she's still alive, at some point, you have to tell your mother that you've written a book about your mother. <laughs> and, you know, given that your mother has strong opinions about everything, and particularly about your life, how has she felt about the book? Or have you shown it to her? I have shown it to mm-hmm. her. I've read it to her mm-hmm. in a page, you know, on this page, this is what I say about you. On this page, this is what I say about you. And we went through the whole book that way. Mm-hmm. She's very happy for herself. My mother's quite narcissistic, and she is extremely pleased that there has been a document dedicated to her, about her, that, you know, will live on. She also, though, interestingly enough, and I'm still trying to make sense of this, to be honest with you, she says, I'm, she said, this is good because I want to help people, and I hopefully this is how I can help people. I don't know, I'm not sure exactly how she thinks that this book will help people. I certainly didn't write it intending for people to be helped. And as the author of the book, you would think that, you know, the intention would be there. I wonder maybe if she's trying to say, I came from nothing. And I, all the nothing that I had was actually taken away from me. So that I had more, you know, even the nothing of nothing. And somehow I survived. It was hard. It still isn't easy to relive for her, I'm sure. But there's a person who's, who, who came out of that. And I think perhaps I wonder whether or not she, she hopes that that might be enough for one person to hang on to and follow. As your, how is the reaction split between people who, get that about your mother, you know, get that story of personal transformation and the people who are sympathetic to you for for growing up under those conditions. A lot of the reaction that I've gotten so far has been people love her. They think she's quite a character and can see themselves in the story and they'll tell me, I have a Portuguese squawking chicken. 
I have a Ukrainian squawking chicken. I have a Jamaican squawking chicken. And so I've been very, very fortunate to get feedback from those who have had similar immigrant stories to share of parents who had a way of life and a way of upbringing that might be different from what we hear about in North America predominantly. What a great tribute that is and and how rewarding that is for me to hear. However, there have been, and some people very close to me, my mother-in-law even, whose approach to motherhood was not like my mother's, who had a hard time reading the book, who had a hard time reading through the parts where she felt that my mother was unnecessarily cruel. Even my mother-in-law who knows me and who knows my mother couldn't accept that and has almost rejected it. Even though she's seen the love and she knows that it's there, it's anathema to her to behave this way as a parent. So the reactions have been very diverse, polarizing. My mother is a polarizing person, so I did never expected that it would be one way or the other. But I, I find that the reactions are actually more interesting. It tells you a lot about who someone is and what they believe with those reactions. Having told this story, do you, as a writer, do you feel like there's more for you? Or, or is this is this the book that you were meant to write or, or are there more? <laughs> when I finished writing that book, I didn't want to ever write again. I write every day on my blog. I write about three 3,500 words a day on my blog. So it's not that I am not practicing every day. I just, it's a different level of intensity writing a book. And it's now been six months since I've put, five months since I've really put the book to bed. And I'm starting to get to a place where I'm, I feel like I might have more stories to tell. I do think, though, that this is not the next, if I do do a next book, it won't be nonfiction. I would like to try a different style, and I'd like to try a novel. But man, I admire the people who say, I can't wait to keep writing, and I can't wait to go home and write, because it is a lonely process. It's maybe one of the loneliest jobs, I think, and I know I haven't done every job, but it's one of the few jobs that no one can do for you when you call in sick. You know, even like an astronaut or a physicist like can find the calculus thing <laughs> to compute into the whatever to be able to make time and space converge. But when you decide to write a story and it's your story, no one can find that word for you and organize that word in the way that you want it those words in the way that you want them to flow and that paragraph in the, the chapter that you want it to be in. It's incredibly lonely and isolating. So while I do have some thoughts and I'm getting to a place where those thoughts might start to become bigger thoughts, at the same time, I'm dreading it a little bit. Luckily, although it is lonely and isolating at the end, you do get to come out and talk to folks about it. And I'm really glad that you were able to come out and do Life Stories today. I have been talking with Elaine Louis. Her memoir is called Listen to the Squawking Chicken. It's just out from Amy Einhorn Books in Putnam. You have been listening to Life Stories. If you are subscribed to the podcast on iTunes already, thanks for that. If you're not subscribed on iTunes, it's very easy to do, and you'll be able to get updated on future episodes as they come out. 
And I hope you might also take a moment to rate and review the podcast and make it a little bit easier for other folks to find down the line as well. I'm Ron Hogan. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again soon. Take care.